This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we make lightning protection easy. If your wind turbines are due for maintenance or repairs, install our Strike Tape Retrofit LPS upgrade at the same time. A Strike Tape installation is the quick, easy solution that provides a dramatic, long-lasting boost to the factory lightning protection system. Forward-thinking windsite owners install Strike Tape today to increase uptime tomorrow. Learn more in the show notes of today's podcast. Welcome back. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And I'm Rosemary Barnes. And this is the Uptime Podcast, bringing you the latest in wind energy tech, news, and policy. Welcome back to the Uptime Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. On today's show, we're going to talk about, right off the bat, uh, hydrogen news. So Hyundai is pledging uh, fuel fuel cell versions of many, if not all, of their makes and models by 2028, which um, is going to be an interesting engineering challenge. Um, We're going to talk a little bit about the overall state of renewables as it comes to sort of one try versus the other. There seems to be a lot of infighting on the web. Of course, that's what the web is for, it seems like at, at times. Um, but we'll talk a little bit about, you know, this whole sort of war on renewables and who's best or if we can all just kind of get along. We'll chat a little bit about distributed wind, an interesting article um, from the United States Department of Energy, just highlighting some of the different uses uh, here in the U.S. of dr- distributed wind. We'll talk about winter manufacturers who are maybe getting their profit margins squeezed a bit as raw material and other costs rise. And then we've got a bunch of interesting composite news. Talked a bunch about that last week, um, but some more here with uh, Compare has this self-healing composite. They're a startup and they've got some interesting tech, um, some interesting blade techs uh, or some interesting blade rotor size designs and then some big news from Siemens with their recyclable blade technology which almost a little bit seems to fly in the face of some of the other stuff we reported on last week about thermosets and reusing them so before we get going just want to remind you number one you can sign up for uptime tech news in the description of this show whether you're on youtube spotify itunes stitcher wherever and that's just our weekly email update where you'll get um, the new show in your inbox along with other great renewable and wind energy news and definitely check out uh, rosemary barnes our other co-host tri host whatever you want to call her uh, her awesome youtube channel in the description below so, uh, Rosemary, let's start with you. So, Hyundai is interested in hydrogen fuel cell versions of all their cars by 2028. Um, you're our hydrogen guru here. Does this seem like a reasonable step? I mean, that's only six years away, and I don't. we don't have any hydrogen cars on the market. Um, I was surprised when I heard that. I think that they do actually already have a, a hydrogen SUV. Well, I read that anyway. I only I only learned that while I was um, researching for today's podcast. So maybe they've got a little bit of a head start. But I was actually really surprised because most of the other manufacturers you see pushing hydrogen cars are ones that don't aren't known for having really good electric cars, um, whereas mm-hmm. Hyundai does. Their Ionic has really good reviews. I mean, it's um, it's one that I'm 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 in the market for a new car sometime in the next few months, and it's definitely on my list if I can get it in Australia. Um, so yeah, from that point of view, I was surprised. But on the other hand, they're a South Korean company, and I know that the 
um, the government there is really pushing hydrogen. So in that sense, it's a bit like what we see in Japan where, you know, it's, um, it's likely to be strongly government-backed, all the infrastructure and stuff that you'll need for it. So maybe that makes sense. Well, and is there going to be, I mean, what's the big advantage? Like, I don't feel like we really even settled into electric cars. You know, my family, um, I don't drive a car since I live here right in the center of D.C., but, you know, all the rest of my uh, immediate family, none of us own electric cars. I'm yet to own an electric car. Um, Alan, do you own any electric cars? No, not at the moment. And I, I, is, is this seem like a big, it's like we haven't even settled in there yet. And yet we're already moving on to the next thing. I mean, what, what kind of infrastructure, Alan, would it take to have refueling? And like, I mean, what is this going to look like? We've talked about this on the aircraft side on our other podcast called Struck. Um, and you just talk about how big of a change you're going to have to have in the fuselage, like every little bit of the airplane is going to be just a, a massive engineering challenge. Is, is it, it's obviously going to be easier for, for vehicles, but I mean, how big of a, a challenge is that? It's a big engineering challenge. And I think Honda and GM both have had uh, hydrogen cars in the United States. I th do think I can still get access. And in, in California, I think you can still buy the hydrogen-based Honda. But the problem is in the States is where are you going to refuel it, right? There's only a limited number of fuel places on hydrogen at the moment. And the engineering challenges in the car itself are a lot more than putting a couple of batteries and an electric motor in. So you, you got these complexities with the hydrogen in the car itself that you have to design around, and then you have to create the infrastructure. And Tesla has pretty much squashed hydrogen. In 2008, when we had the economic collapse and the federal government actually owned the majority stake in General Motors, you know, that was one of the discussions because GM and some of the car manufacturers had already sort of progressed into hydrogen, and they were told to stop. Right. So in the United States, those car companies were just told hydrogen is never going to happen. We're going to go electric and battery power, which then changed the way the marketplace exists in the United States. And Tesla took full advantage of that. Right. So Tesla installed thousands of recharging stations across the country. So now hydrogen, which has a lot more infrastructure involved, can't really catch up in the States. It would take a good solid 10 years, I think, to get to the point of having hydrogen everywhere and being able to generate or a truck it around or whatever you're going to do, I, I think that's over, right? So I, I'm, I'm curious why on the other side of the world, hydrogen is really still uh, being considered. Uh, Rosemary, is it being considered in, in Australia at all for normal vehicles still? Uh, a, a little bit. And you see a few trials to use hydrogen for home heating as well in Australia, which is the weirdest thing because we're the last place that, that, struggles with, <laughs> with challenges of using <laughs> heat pumps for heating. So very strange. But what Australia really wants to do is sell hydrogen to these countries. So, um, yeah, and when you look at the the markets that we're signing, you know, um, deals with or, I don't know, whatever comes before a deal, it's like Japan and um, South Korea, mostly countries that don't have a lot of capability to um, to make a lot of renewable electricity themselves so that's why yeah those countries i think are, are really pushing the hydrogen from the government level um yeah and i think that that is the only way that it can can work for passenger cars at least because i mean you say yeah electric cars have the head start but even if they were both starting from the same point i think that there is a bigger bigger initial hurdle for hydrogen cars to face 
let alone the inefficiency of using hydrogen as a fuel instead of electricity. And then there's the consumer side too, I think, because like if I, um, I'm looking for a, a new car and one of my big um, constraints is that usually when I'm driving, I'm driving a long way. I'm driving to go surfing at the coast. I'm driving to the mountains to go skiing or mountain biking. So I am, I do have a bit of range anxiety. But when I think about, um, yeah, hydrogen, it's worse, the range anxiety, because I've got a, I can only go places that have a, you know, a fuel, a hydrogen yeah. fuel station. It'll be a long time before we get that network out. And electric cars have the advantage of you never have to go to a petrol station midweek, you know, you just charge at home for your daily commute. And I just think that for passenger cars, like out of all the things you could do with hydrogen, passenger cars is the least likely to kind of win. Well, Rosemary, what's what's the advantage? Like, why should people care? Like, to, you know, like electric is different than gas. It's completely different. Right. But like, why should I care that my car burns hydrogen or, or how, you know, I don't exactly know how a fuel cell works, but um, why should people care that they use hydrogen versus electric? Is it going to be faster? Is it going to be cheaper? Is it going to be better for the environment? Like, I mean, what what is the selling point and how are people going to say, oh, yeah, I'd rather have a hydrogen car than an electric car. Like, is there going to be a big difference in any of those sort of key factors? Yeah, I think so. And I think also, I mean, people have been developing hydrogen cars um, for decades. I I think, um, you know, like maybe 10, 20 years ago, battery electric cars hadn't got any any kind of reasonable range at that point. And so um, hydrogen seemed like the way to decarbonize passenger cars. So I think that's kind of how it started. And now the main the main selling point for hydrogen is that um, is the the range like if the amount of time you uh, kilometers that you can go in between fueling so you know you could still drive a thousand kilometers um between stops at a, a petrol station um or hydrogen station <laughs> uh, which is you know like really similar to uh internal combustion engines so i think that that's that's the main thing but you know hydrogen t- takes up a lot of space so if you look at like actually comparing two equivalent cars and you'll usually see you know like a slower the hydrogen um, fuel cell car will probably be a bit slower than the electric one and have a bit less um, storage space in there. So less range, less less speed, uh, less storage space. Sign me up. Sign me up, guys. It's like a con- no, it's like a more, slow convertible. Yeah, more more range, but less everything oh, have, oh, else. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. In in general, okay. although if you look at actual examples, like the main hydrogen car that anyone actually has now is the Mirai, and that doesn't have such a such a great range. I can't remember what it is on uh, off the top of my head, but yeah, it's um, yeah. I mean, I don't believe in hydrogen passenger cars, um, <laughs> but some some people do, obviously. Yeah, and that's. I mean, we talked about the uh, Librix um, hydrogen ladder and. So going back to that, like, you just wonder where, like, is this something that's we really need to do? Or is it just something that's maybe pie in the sky or maybe not, maybe not economical? So moving on, um, speaking of costs and just all these engineering challenges, uh, offshore wind costs are rising. And it looks like it's getting tougher and tougher for some of these uh, OEMs to turn a profit and make a buck, even though obviously there's a huge offshore boom globally and specifically here in the U.S. Uh, with the new administration. Um, Alan, what are some of the struggles that these OEMs are facing um, and why are their profit margins being trimmed so thin? Well, I think the manufacturer got burned in the States not long ago on uh, some of the exchange rates combined with material costs, combined with government's fluctuations on whether they're going to 
permit uh, turbines to go in. And, and there was an interesting podcast by Siemens uh, put out a, maybe a month or two ago where they were talking about the offshore opportunities in wind and saying in the United States, the, the marketplace is huge, but the ability of, of the OEMs to manufacture the number of turbines in the short amount of time is really, there's, there's like a 10% chance they're going to do that. So they are being very hesitant in the United States on the offshore wind just because the economics, there's not enough of a profit margin. And remember, a lot of these large industrial companies are working on 2 to 3% profit margin. It doesn't take a lot to blow away 3% and you're in the negative, right? And then your, your company can't function. So they're very careful about where they put investment money in. And I'll, I'll give you another example. Was it LM? I think it was LM that's going to build a facility in Teesside, UK, which is GE. GE and LM are going to build a, a blade manufacturing facility in Teesside just for the offshore wind off the UK. That's a huge financial investment. And that's just in the UK, which is much smaller marketplace than the United States. So you can imagine in the United States, a, co a company like Siemens or GE would, could invest hundreds of millions of dollars in facilities easily to support wind. And if, if uh, the administration changes in the United States, if the economy tanks, you, you could collapse uh, a Siemens, right? And, and that's the struggle. So they're going to be extremely cautious going forward. I think financially they have to be. So you want to basically book a sale, get the money in the bank, then build the turbine. That's the ideal they want to get to. They don't want to be floating your money uh, and, and wait for the, you know, the government to change in Massachusetts so you can't put offshore wind in. They want to have a confirmed order and payment for that turbine before they build it. I think that's the way they're going to approach it. So this is going to be a totally different uh, economic structure than maybe has been in the last 20 years, particularly like in Texas or Iowa where you've had large, massive uh, financial companies involved in the development process. I'm not sure offshore wind's going to have that same sort of thing when it really gets going, particularly from the OEM side. And, and Rosemary, I know Australia is going to be in one of those places and in, in, in your part of the world is, where there's going to be a lot of offshore wind. Are you seeing the same, same sort of economic turn in the, in the conservatism towards offshore wind from the OEMs? Uh, we're way behind um, Europe and the US in terms of offshore wind. We're still just at the stage of talking about it. There's definitely one that one project that looks like it's gonna gonna happen, but I still, you know, I wouldn't bet money on it actually <laughs> actually existing and it won't be towards until towards the end of the decade. But that's as much because we have so much land available um, and we have a bit of a challenging offshore environment too. The, um, you know, the shelf drops off quickly. So it's, there's not much opportunity to put them in shallow water like um, the early wind farms have been in Europe. So I think it's a bit early to say if we're going to face um, similar. Yeah. I'll be surprised if we get much wind turbine manufacturing in Australia, but, we do have some really huge, like land-based um, projects. You know, all those uh, what do they call them? Giga Giga projects um, in the the desert. I mean, there's so much volume there that it might make sense. But I think you're so right when you say about like a wind turbine manufacturer doesn't want to just build a factory in, and 
and hope that the market develops. They really do need a strong pull <laughs> to get in there in the form of confirmed orders or governments often give really, really attractive incentives to get, you know, factories into regions that need jobs. Um, so I think in Australia it'd be the same without without really compelling reasons, they're gonna they're gonna build them where they where they already can. I want to kind of switch gears a little bit. So well, there's an interesting article from Wintech International about um, super large rotor blades um, in the sort of development pipeline or really more just sort of like in the prototype pipeline, if that's a thing. Um, and we've talked about blades getting longer and longer. We talked about the new 16 megawatt um, offshore turbine by Mingyang recently. Um, but Rosemary, where are we going to start to see these rotor blades um, especially when they hit this sort of quote-unquote super large status, are they going to start to run into additional problems? Yeah, so I was just thinking it's a little bit similar to maybe five or ten years ago where we keep on getting these, you know, announcement after announcement of the world's longest, world's largest, you know, whatever. And I think the the thing to note is that it's really easy to make an announcement. It's not like, you know, where um in the Guinness World Records where there's a set criteria for what it means when you can say, I have the world's longest um wind turbine rotor. So uh, I think that, yeah, everybody wants to announce something like this, but to me, I mean, it, until you've got a wind turbine blade design that somebody has bought, um, I don't really think too much of it. I mean, I can give you a 250-meter-long blade design by the end of the day if you wanted, and we can announce that we have the world's longest blade but um you know like unless unless it's a real commercially viable thing i i don't really pay that much attention to it no yeah i i think it's very comparable to what happened in airplanes not that long ago which is the the largest passenger airplane was the airbus a380 and now they're not making it anymore because the costs are so prohibitive and the same thing on the fastest commercial airline, which was the Concorde. And that didn't last very long. I think they made 10 of those. So the, the, the economics really play into what products succeed and which don't. And you can make blades much longer, but there's a lot of costs involved with that from the tooling to the, to the, all the materials to the added stronger fibers. When you were talking about using a lot of carbon fiber in it, and then you have, well, you have lightning protection issues. You just have run the gamut. And at some point, it doesn't become economically feasible to even do it. Even though you could announce it, you wouldn't want to do it. And, and the wind turbine industry, I think they're, they're full of really smart economics people that are looking at the cost of manufacturing this turbine, the cost to get it to the site, to install it, the cost to repair it, which could be astronomical, uh, the cost of something collapsing, all those play into that economic model. And I think the, the energy industry has done a much better job than the airplane industry of sort of predicting those things. So if the airplane industry will stumble and make 50 Airbus A380s, yeah, okay, you know, Airbus will be around tomorrow. But if uh, Vestas makes a 200-meter-long blade and it goes catastrophic somehow, Vestas could be sunk, right? And th that's that's the difference, is that they got to be really careful about the economics and the risk they're willing to take uh, versus the potential marketplace. I don't think you're going to gain that much marketplace, honestly. If you made another blade another three meters long and it gets another 0.01 AEP, I, I don't think anybody cares versus the downside risk of, I got to go fix this thing. That That's where I think uh, these blade... Uh, 
press releases don't make any sense because it doesn't really drive the marketplace. Well, where can they, I mean, can they announce like, so say, you know, Energy Tech announced a new wind turbine in a year and it wasn't bigger, but it was just better. Well, like where can they get better without getting bigger? I guess is my question. Like, it, oh, they can't continue yeah. to get bigger forever. So like what, what would be the cool announcement that they would make where it's like, hey, we made a blade that's only <laughs> 98 meters long, but it's awesome. Here's a couple of reasons why. I mean, Rosemary, what could they do to make better but not bigger? Oh, they can make it cheaper. <laughs> that's that's uh, okay, basically what go. everybody's everybody's trying trying to do. I mean, no one's really trying to make the world's biggest blade, except for maybe um, marketing departments like that. Everyone's trying to make the world's cheapest, um, you know, kilowatt hour of electricity from a wind turbine. That's that's what we're all trying to do. Fair. Um, and then the other things, I mean, there's, there's noise, there's recyclability, there's, um, danger to wildlife, um, visual impact. These are the things that people care about. And, um, yeah, I mean, if you look at any ad for a, a small wind turbine or any, you know, like really weird out there, um, wind turbine concept, these are always the, the points that they hit. Um, those are the perceived downsides to the utility scale turbines. But, um, honestly, I don't see most of them changing too much except for the, the cost. And yeah, it's always, it's always the cost. The answer is always cost for nearly every question you ask about wind turbines. <laughs> Got it. Well, that was a good lead into distributed wind. So, I mean, distributed wind is, it seems like it's picking up speed, but it's still not as widely used, um, I guess, worldwide as it could be. Uh, we had our friends from EOCycle on the show, I guess, about six months ago now, um, and they're excited about the industry. But, you know, this it says, so this interesting article from energy.gov, um, which is the U.S. Department of Energy, that there's 87,000 wind turbines across the 50 states, here, at least here in the U.S., uh, Puerto Rico, Virgin Islands, and Guam, um, and that from 2003 to 2020, uh, the cumulative install capacity is about 1,000 megawatts. So that's not a lot, but it's certainly something. Um, Rosemary, I mean, it seems to me like distributed wind could be like a cool sort of like minor leagues where they test a lot of stuff out and maybe new tech starts small and goes bigger, but it doesn't seem like that's that's the way this works, does it? Because it seems like they're very different. The blade structures are very different. I mean, where do you see the, is there a trickle down from big to small? Is there a trickle up from small to big? I mean, how does, how do the, the distributed wind and, and engineering of big wind interact, if, it, if at all? I have a few videos in the pipeline and my um, first live stream is going to be on this topic because people are so interested in distributed wind and, um, you know, they, they, they love it. They're really enthusiastic for it. You can put solar panels on your roof. People want to put a wind turbine on their roof or in their backyard. Um, but I mean, to answer your question, they're totally separate in my opinion, the small wind turbines versus the large ones. I don't see any kind of technology transfer between them. I, um, any, the, the small wind turbine market is, it's like a cowboy industry. There's so much misinformation out there. And, um, my, big piece of advice for anyone who wants to get into it is to look at the certification. There's a couple of different um, bodies that are certifying small wind turbine blades and testing their claims. And so get a turbine that's been certified if you're going to get one, because otherwise you've got no clue what you're going to get. Um, yeah, but basically the the number one downside to distributed wind versus, say, distributed solar is that the wind resource in urban environments is 
is much worse than what it is in, um, you know, the kind of locations where they put utility scale wind farms. So um, in urban environments, you've got heaps of turbulence, you've got low wind speeds. And remember that the power in the wind, it changes with the cube of the wind speed. So if you double the wind speed, you have eight times as much power in it. And that's why we see um, large wind turbines, that the towers are getting taller and taller. They're going to all the effort to put them offshore because that's where really great wind is. So urban wind's the opposite. It's nice and um, we can make energy, but I don't think we'll ever see really cost-effective wind energy um, from the the distributed environment. So it needs to be done for other reasons. So if you're going off grid, if you want an engineering project to tinker with, um, if you, um, yeah, I guess those are the, those are the main, the main things. If energy independence is important to you, um, and you like the look of distributed wind, then that's the people that it suits. In, in my area, distributed wind is banned. Uh, our, our town and local communities have actually uh, prohibited wind turbines within the town limits. Uh, and that is not unusual on in the Northeast because uh, of sight lines to the mountains or sight lines to the ocean. Uh, so the, the, the wind projects, the smaller wind projects have essentially stopped unless you're out on a, on a farm somewhere. The solar projects continue to happen because there's massive incentives in my area to, to do it and they'll come and install solar panels on your roof and all is great. But the, the wind turbine side has been really quiet. And I, I think there are still in the United States, because of the, the, the land mass and the 330 million people, there's still a viable marketplace for, for smaller wind projects to take place. And I, I do think there will always be that a niche market there and a profitable market there. But the, 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 the lessons learned between large wind and small wind are, are totally different, right? Because you just, the, the structures are different. The way they're built is different. The, what the, what they need to provide is different. And so I don't think you're going to see any, any cross development there. I think the places where it makes sense are places like islands, islands which have limited resources and can use smaller wind uh, to run generators or to provide uh, uh, pumps or whatever for, for water. Those things make a lot more sense than sort of an, in, an industrialized society where there's electricity freely everywhere. Um, the small wind's going to have limited spaces where th they can participate. Yeah, well, and as Paul Dawson um, from EOCycle, who was, our, our, again, our former guest, he was saying that, you know, the Midwest – where there's medium-sized farms and there's some small businesses out there where they do have good wind, um, you know, it might make sense for them. Um, but you're right. It seems like it's a complex issue with just urban areas where, you know, like you said, sight lines or like the Northeast would just be a really complicated place to put one. I mean, you could definitely see that. Not to mention the land is so expensive. Um, not like you're using it up, but yeah, just just lots of different costs compared to somewhere like the Midwest, which probably is a, a really suitable place for it, at least here in the U.S. Um, but yeah, and we've talked about some of the just the structures of blades, how many of them don't have a lightning pr protection system or don't have a real need for it. They're solid blades, right? They're not they're not hollow like uh, the commercial size ones. Um, so anyway, interesting interesting stuff by um, the Office of Energy and Efficiency and Renewable Energy. Um, because it would be cool to see that sort of fill in and just be a bigger market in the U.S. And I don't know, maybe some of the costs will come down from the trickle-down effect, even if there's not a lot of shared shared engineering. Who knows? But um, So moving on, Compare 
is a, uh, a spinoff company and they are developing a self-healing composite material. So what they say is, um, this is a quote from their CEO, with our technology, repair agent is incorporated in the composite material. Cracks on the resin can be repaired on site. Uh, they heat the, the material to moderate temperature and then activates the repair agent and then the damaged part will heal. Will heal. Um, so, Rosemary, you're um, one of our, well, two of the three of you are, are composites experts, but um, Rosemary, I'll start with you. Uh, is this sound like pretty revolutionary thing? Is Have we had any version of this in the past, or is this completely new, this self-healing technology? Oh, I don't think it's completely new because, I mean, if you're ever using a thermoplastic resin, then you can heat that too uh, and reset it. And um, I actually couldn't get... I assume that this is a thermoplastic as well. So didn't from the information that I saw, I didn't see anything revolutionary in it. Maybe there is and they're keeping it a secret. It's possible. But, yeah, it only fixes cracks in the resin. Um, so I, I don't know. I don't see any wind turbine blade repairs that involve only a crack in the in the resin. That's not like a, a – that's – a very small damage that you probably wouldn't even notice. Um, so I don't see a huge application for this in um, to change anything much in wind turbine blades. But, you know, some of the other things like a car bumper, for example, you're constantly probably having like small bits of damage to your car bumper and, yeah, you go heat it up and um, it repairs itself. That, that sort of thing I think it, it could be pretty cool for. Alan, is this something that could start small and, and grow bigger over time? I mean, a lot of these you know, little breakthroughs might, like you said, not have a lot of applications early or just very specific ones, but then maybe grow generally. Is this a candidate for that or no? I think this kind of technology, which there's been different variations of this for in aviation discussed for the last 20 years, uh, it, I, I, aviation and wind energy are not the places to start. Uh, I think there are a lot of other industries in which this makes sense. Small boats, for example, uh, things that are, are, are you know, Ooh, are, if you're sinking, you could just heat it up and you stop sinking. That'd be awesome. Yeah. I mean, boats get dinged all the time, right? So boats get dinged all the time and they're expensive to repair. So yeah, you're not going to sink the boat, but it would maybe save you money on the repair side. So the, 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 those are the places where this industry needs to grow. It goes back to my big complaint about composites and plastic makers and the whole thing. Like your first article is not an airplane. Your first article is not a wind turbine. Your first article may be a skateboard. <laughs> Let's just start off as, <laughs> as minimal as we can get and figure out the technology because that's where everything else started, right? We didn't get to aluminum airplanes without going through a huge development cycle. We, we'd still be making them out of wood unless World War II happened. And so it takes time to develop the, 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 the technology before it gets involved in something as critical as me flying in an airplane. I, I, I do not want to be in an airplane with a lot of new technology. I want that technology to be being like honed for 20, 30 years before I step on the on the airplane. I think the same thing exists in wind. Let's take a step back. Let's yank the marketing guys out of the discussion and stop issuing press releases and say, hey, look, we can make money in eight different markets. We don't need to be in wind and, and be an uh, uh, upsetter or a game changer or whatever kind of lingo is being thrown out in the marketing world right now. You don't need that. As a business person, you need to start small, figure out where that marketplace exists and kill it in that marketplace. And then you can expand your horizons, but at least get the small stuff right first. Have you ever seen a skateboard crack, though, when someone like jumps it off like a ledge down some stairs and they crack? I mean, yeah, they need to be strong, sure. too. Skateboards, skateboards are actually... Pretty impressive little pieces of uh, <laughs> of craftsmanship. Uh, There's a lot of technology. 
And Alan, are you saying you wouldn't fly in the Spruce Goose if we could revive it somehow? (laughs) Are you saying you wouldn't be in that thing? No. Well, I'll give you the good example, right? So there've been a lot of like right flyers being rebuilt because of the, you know, in 2003, it was the 100 year anniversary of the right flyer. So there was a lot of projects to rebuild the right flyer and a lot of them resulted in big crashes. So (laughs) unless you're really familiar with the material, there's a difference between spruce that was made in 1902 and 1903 than spruce that's made in 2003. What, what do you mean made? What do you mean made? These are trees, well, Alan. The you trees are totally spruce. different. You no, they're down. not. They're, they're not the same. It. Not the same. All right. They're all right. Not fine. the same, right? The, the, the woods are different. The way they respond is different. The technology and it's the people, the, hand, the, the hand, people that can handle that stuff and manufacture it and know how to process it are totally different. Now then, 1915, when they're making you know, 50,000 airplanes out of wood. It's a totally different thing. And I think it's not just the material and how cool it is, but it's also how it gets integrated into the larger stream of processing, maintenance, technicians touching it, all that, which gets, gets overlooked, is where the failures occur. Because one technician, I'll give you a simple example here. On the, on the repair side, if I was supposed to heat the material up to get the repair to happen, what happens when the technician gets it too hot? What happens? I mean, if you're going to let them get it hot, they're going to get it hot. If they, get, if they overheat it, do they just ruin the whole structure and not even know? right? Because what's going to tell them they overheated it, right? Those kind of things are real situations that happen all the time. And if unless you build in those failure modes into the design of that product, you can have big accidents. And I think the technology is cool, but you have to look at how it's going to be used and what what the downstream applications are. And a lot of times this, that doesn't happen. That That's interesting. Also, I'm glad we're filming remotely because... I feel like you angered Mother Nature just now, and she's going to strike you down with a lightning bolt. <laughs> Thankfully, I'm many miles away from you. So, okay. And Rosie's across the pond, so she's, so she's she's safe. Yeah, the lightning guy yeah, takes, a, takes a bolt. Goes down. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, well, moving on. Uh, and this, I think, our, our big discussion here is uh, Siemens Gamesa's new announcement about their recyclable blade. And I think they missed an opportunity here to call this recycler blade, but... You know, I digress. Um, that they are basically saying that they're ready to do some of the things that Vestas was sort of announcing that they're purporting to do uh, when it comes to, you know, fine-tuning some of the recyclable aspects of winter and blade. Like we talked about thermostats and how they're not quite maybe ready to, you know, be reused again. So, um Rosie, we'll start with you. Recycle Blade, what's what's the story here? What what sticks out to you about this announcement from Siemens Gamesa? Well, yeah, so, I mean, it does sound like it's ahead of um, some of the other recyclable pre- blade projects we've seen where they have earmarked some some blades that are going into a new natural wind farm. I think it's not all the blades for the wind farm, but just a few of them, which is um, smart, I guess, Start start small. So from what I could gather, it's a new new resin kind, I assume still a thermoset resin, so they'll have, you know, those good structural properties. And then when it comes time to recycle it, they're going to um, like dissolve the resin in an acid solution. Um, they'll recover the fibers that way and use them in other applications. And the applications they mentioned were um, a little bit lower-grade structural applications like um, – like in automotive, uh, a common place would be like bumpers or dashboards. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it wasn't they didn't say anything about reusing the the resin so my interpretation is that probably the resin isn't being reused so i I, don't, I, I mean, I don't know if that's true, but if that's true, I think it is a stretch to say that it's 100% recyclable because, you know, resin makes up like a very large <laughs> large percentage of the, the blade. But, yeah, a, a new way to recycle fibres that sounds like it's closer to execution than the other projects we've been talking about. So that's that's exciting. Well, you know, if these recyclable blades go out now, we're not going to know if this works for 20 years, right? I assume they do t- tests. <laughs> I don't think that. So they know the now. Maybe they're just like, they "Hey, this works," just... and we'll figure it out. We got two decades <laughs> yeah. to figure it out. Yeah, I've made a blade. I think I'm going to be able to recycle it, but I'm not going to try. I'm just going <laughs> to put the blade up and you know Fair make enough. blades for the yeah. next thirty years, and then <laughs> I assume Fair it's going to work enough. out fine. <laughs> I hope that the 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 testing some panels. I hope they've already tested some panels, and I assume they have if they're like prepared to say that they're going to build some in the next years. So, well, I want to see them just you know like how you can throw packing peanuts or some versions of packing peanuts in water and they just dissolve. That's what I want to see. You just like hold a blade and just like dip it in and just gone. Like a, put it like somewhere a where it doesn't ca- rain. Boiling cauldron. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good. Good point. Alan, what stuck out to you about this? Well, I, I was watching uh, the ORE catapult discussion about blade recycling and the different variations there are to blade recycling and i'm i I may be the the lone american sliding into their discussion because ore is really focused on the uk but whatever it's open to the public so i'm at least one of the public so i I like listening to what they have to say because I, i think the uk is doing a tremendous job right now on wind turbine development technology but that, that discussion uh, with Ori Catapult brought in Vestas, brought in Siemens, uh, brought in a bunch of other engineering experts. And they were talking about this uh, uh, set epoxy system that would break down in, in an acid. And it, it was talked about in the theory side still, which was weird. And it, literally the next day, Siemens Camesa announces, we're already doing this and it, it looks like it's going to work. And we're going to start producing blades with it, which is shocking because the my gut feel out of the catapult discussion was it was still maybe five, 10 years off in terms of uh, really coming up with a system, an ecosystem to use the material, to process the material, to recycle the material, to find places to, you know, break it apart and send off the constituent pieces to recyclers or reuse people. So I'm, I'm a little, I'm a, and, and also Siemens Gamesa made a point of not announcing who the manufacturer of the of that thermal set is who is it is it olin is it uh, one of the five or six different manufacturers of thermal sets that are around today who is doing this stuff uh so it, it's still a question mark in my mind and, and i don't know if siemens camesa is using this as a marketing advantage for the time being to allow them to put their foot in the door in places where they are, are struggling to get into right vestas is clearly the leader in a lot of places in wind turbines particularly in europe so but siemens has got to do something to sort of penetrate that bubble maybe maybe this is it because there seems to be a lot of oversight and concern about recycling and hey that's great but i think i think on on the rosemary side i'm super worried about what this material is and what its lifetime is and yeah do we wait 20 years to find out if it's going to work or not because if it works five years and blades start to come apart that's a problem (laughs) well and this is interesting on on linkedin um a post from rwe um rwe renewables they're they sort of have their own infographic about this this cycle which they've they've tested a recyclable winter blade 
And there's there are four steps is one, decommission, two, immerse in mild acidic solution, three, reclaim, separate components, four, reuse. But my question to you both is, in step two, why the word mild? So immerse in mild, A, I would think that because wind turbine blades are super tough, that it would have to be incredibly not mild and super strong acidic acid. But why did they specifically use the word mild there? Is it marketing? Because it seems like if the cell, we have this gentle solution, that doesn't seem like it would cut it to me. I just think acid sounds like a harsh, harsh word that you don't want in your your ad copy. That's that's so, my sound, interpretation. Sounds more green and friendly. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Alan, is that your take? Yeah, no, what Vestas was talking about, because they had a Vestas uh, recycling key person in that Ori Catapult discussion, they actually showed a beaker full of this acidic solution, and they named what it was. And at the time, I thought, oh, that's mildly acidic. It's not sulfuric acid, (laughs) which is what I assumed it was going to be. But there was some mild, it was like uh, some mild acid that they were putting it in. Now, there may be more to the chemistry, like the the, the thermal set may be reacting to what the particular acid is. And so it's it's like a key unlocking a door. It's going to break apart the the crosslink. It doesn't have to be a battering ram. Got it. Right. Yeah. It, it may not have to be that way. Right. So, uh, but the way that Vestas described the technology was it was still in beaker form. When I mean beaker form, it's still being, it's still being developed in the lab and that they didn't have a manufacturer f- fleshed out on what this material was. And Vestas, I asked the Vestas uh, person in the, in the overall community, hey, hey, look, on recycling, which one's going to get there first? Thermal sets? Recyclable thermal sets or recyclable thermoplastics? And the, the impression I got was thermoplastics are going to be there sooner, that there's already sort of existing technology in thermoplastics. And because of the advantages manufacturing-wise in thermoplastics, that may be the winner. There may be a thermal set out there that's doing this thing, but we need to really look at thermoplastics. It sounds like it's this announcement by Siemens Gamesa strikes you as just a little ahead or just a little odd or a little bit just incomplete or just we don't have enough information to really know what they're up to. We, we don't know right yet. And I think as the marketplace develops, if you see developers, and particularly in Europe, developers in Europe choosing Siemens Gamesa because of the recyclability of the blades, then you'll know. Like this is going to be a game changer. If what I think is going to happen, the uh, the accountants and the insurance people are going to step in and say, hey, and, and the DNVs of the world are going to step in and say, show it. We really want to make sure this is going to work. We love the concept. We love the idea. It's great. But you, I can't take the risk. So you're going to have to prove it to me. I think that phase needs to be fleshed out a little bit more. Well, what what is the risk specifically? I mean, you know, like Veolia is shredding up blades. Again, if you buy a blade today and install a wind turbine today, you've got 20 years to figure out what to do with it from a recyclability standpoint. Like, do you need a solution that's like, ready to go now? Or are you kind of okay thinking like, look, we got 20 years. That's a long time. We didn't have iPhones 20 years ago. I mean, think about how much the world has changed. Uh, I mean, we have like Tyrannosaurus Rexes in 20 years, just run around, just eat all the old blades. And that's, their, <laughs> that's what they do. We have no idea what's going to happen. I mean, but I, in all seriousness, like, is it something that they need to worry about? Like they would make a buying decision based on that today, knowing how much time they have for other companies to make a, more solutions? 
Yeah, I think that the OEMs are really um, worried that there's going to be regulation soon about, um, and, and we're already starting to see that, but I know that they've been thinking about this for, for a long time, probably at least 10 years um, before, um, you know, as soon as anybody started to notice that wind turbine blades weren't recyclable, they're like, okay, at some point someone's going to make a, re, um, a regulation that you can't sell a blade that's not recyclable. And that's why everybody is, I mean, we get lots of announcements now, but it's been consistent progress over a lot of a lot of years already so i think that that's the the real driver for it um but yeah i did take your point earlier i laughed at you dan about um <laughs> you just waiting 30 30 years to see if you could recycle it but i guess i mean it could it until you get to that point you don't know did the blade last that long it's a bit hard to test things like you know how durable is something in real weather conditions um and yeah, we take their word for it that because they were able to recycle a you know little piece in the lab that that's the same as being able to recycle a full blade at the end of its lifetime. So maybe maybe this is a premature announcement to try and get some some advantage. I guess there's no easy way to tell. Well, and I think that is a good thing. Like obviously, every all these, especially with offshore. I mean, it's going to be complicated to decommission offshore wind farms. Have there been many decommissioned offshore wind farms to this point? That seems like just a obviously a really expensive process. Number one, um, and number two, that that whole thing might change tremendously with technology. I mean, they have some super ship where they can just process it right there on the boat, and you might not even want to recycle it the way it was intended. Once you have some new solution twenty years from now, where it's like, yeah, we could do what you know they intended twenty years ago, but now that we have this gigantic you know ship that's got a grinder on it it's just going to make way more sense to do it that way like we you know we have no idea what could be out there all right well that's going to do it for this week's episode of the uptime podcast thanks so much for listening be sure to subscribe on spotify itunes stitcher youtube wherever you listen or watch again be sure to check out uptime tech news and subscribe you'll find the links in that in the description below and subscribe to rosemary barnes's youtube channel engineering with rosie where you'll get more uh, videos, tutorials, all that sort of stuff on everything renewable energy. We will see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Operating a profitable wind farm is all about mitigating costs, minimizing risks, and being efficient with maintenance, repairs, and upgrades. It's incredibly expensive to send a team of rope access technicians up tower to make even simple repairs. We also know how costly lightning damage can be, requiring inspection, repairs, and downtime for even minor lightning strikes. Maximize the time efficiency of your techs and prevent future lightning damage by installing our Strike Tape LPS upgrade the next time your crews are going up on ropes. Learn more in today's show notes or visit us on the web at weatherguardwind.com.